So, as I've said, I am really pumped to be here and to be doing this. Um, it's so exciting. And to open this book, Obadiah, specifically. So some of the first Christians in my life, specifically my mom and my dad, but some others as well, um, they just believed and had such faith that if I opened this book, I would see Jesus. And so I love even just the theme of um, this, or the title of this series has been Finding Jesus in the Minor Prophets, right? Um, I just have faith that you will see Jesus. And so I'm so excited for this. Um, and that is true in Obadiah, as true as it is um, in any other book. So what I find really interesting about this is that Obadiah is actually the shortest book in the Hebrew Bible. That's kind of interesting, right? It feels like this like dusty, dark corner of the Bible that maybe some of us have never studied. Actually, who here has studied Obadiah? Not just read it, but studied it. Todd. Todd has. He preached this morning. <laughs> some people are like, yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, who's read Obadiah? Just read it before. Okay, we got some people here. Good. Literate, door of hope, biblically literate. I love it. Um, okay, but who, who maybe studied it in like the last year? Okay, so it will probably be dusty for everybody but Tom. Tom's got it. Okay, um, Tom can just teach if he would like to, but no, just kidding. <laughs> okay, so I just find it so interesting that it's like this dark and dusty corner of the Bible um, that some of us maybe like don't know super well, but in it, God has preserved something for us. So there's, it's just as useful to the original Hebrew or to the original readers. Um, it is just as useful to them as it is to us in this modern day. So um, something else I, th I find really interesting is that the book of Obadi uh, Obadiah, we don't know a ton about it. So we don't know a ton about when it was written. There's some clues that we get from like some of the verses, but we don't know a ton about when it was written or really who Obadiah even was, um, which is kind of exciting, right? It's like this mystery for us to, to unfurl. So I'm excited. Um, we do know that Obadiah's name means worshiper or servant of the Lord, and so we can guess and assume that he was someone who followed God. Um, but yes, this text has been preserved as part of scripture. It has been God-breathed, and it is for us as much as the original readers. Is that not exciting to you? It's exciting to me. Am I just a weirdo? <laughs> okay, I'm seeing and hearing some excitement brewing, so this is good. Um, yes, it's like an adventure we get to undertake to search the scriptures to understand what does this text, what does this book have for us today? So that is my hope. I want to dig into this book with you and see what is, what is it that we can learn about God through the book of Obadiah. And secondly, so I have two hopes. My second hope is that as a result, that you would hunger for God's word. That you would hunger for his presence and even his lordship in your life. Jesus' lordship in your life. I want to help open your eyes to the scriptures. And as a result, my prayer all week has been that your heart would literally burn. So I'm going to give you some heartburn, okay? Um, I hope your heart burns within you. Um, I know as I have had a chance to read and study this text over the last couple weeks, um, Jesus has just totally done this for me. He has, I have been overwhelmed with his presence in this text. So I'm super excited. Um, and I just hope that you can see that if maybe your, if your heart's not burning right now, mine does for you, okay? Do you believe me? Yeah. Okay, cool. 
Um, okay, so first, let's do some exegesis. Anyone know that word? Hopefully some of us. Exegesis is just a really fancy-schmancy Greek word that means, like, to dig in, to, like, look into the text. Um, and I, I have kind of, like, a specific way of when I, whenever I'm doing some teaching or preaching, I kind of, like, want to be a math teacher. Um, anyone math teachers in the room? Ray? Where is Ray? He's not here, Okay. Um, so my little sister is trying to be a math teacher right now. She's in school trying to be this. And uh, what I remember my math teachers always saying, anyone know? Not just like get the right answer, but what? Show your work. Show your work. Okay? So that's what I want to do. I want to show you my work. Um, they weren't really, math teachers weren't really interested in just like if you got the right answer. They wanted to see your process and see how that happened. Um, They wanted to see how you got there. So I just want to show you my work because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter to you what I think this has for us unless you see it too, okay? All right, so let's do some exegesis. Let's open up to the book of Obadiah. And it's totally okay if you need to like go to the table of contents and find your page number or if you're like doing your phone, that's a little bit easier. Um, Okay, so let's pull it up on the screen. We got the first section here. Um, the first thing you're going to see is that there are four movements in this book. So you can kind of see if you're looking at your Bible, some of us have like um, headings. So you'll see four different headings. There's four movements. Um, and let's just start with the first verse, okay? Okay, the vision of Obadiah. And then we have this little heading, Edom will be humbled. Thus says the Lord concerning Edom. Okay, so we haven't gotten very far, but I'm going to interject. Um, and I might do that a lot. So here we see Obadiah is writing concerning the nation of Edom. Okay, anybody know who the Edomites are descendants of other than Todd? Anybody? I, heard, I think I heard it over here. Esau. Way to go. Um, yes, the Edomites are descendants of Esau. So right away we begin to see that Obadiah is writing concerning the nation, not of Israel, who are the descendants of who? Jacob, but the descendants of his brother's nation, Esau. Okay, so I think it's really important that we just back up a bit and remember who Esau is in the context of the full story of scripture. So whenever I'm teaching, I like to really make sure that we understand the full scripture or the full story of scripture, and how this specific text that we're talking about fits into that. So bear with me. We're going we're gonna to take 12 steps back, but then we're going to come back to this, okay? So bear with me. Um, okay, so in the story of scripture, we have a God who makes man and woman in his image, and he blesses them with dominion over, um, over his creation, Okay, so this is where I'm just going to quote Todd because he just said it so good this morning that I'm just going to rip it off of him. Todd said, he, crown, he being God crowns them with his image and God seeks to partner with humanity to care for his creation. It just was so good. I just had to take it. Um, okay, so, but all too quickly, what happens? Eve takes of this fruit, right? She takes control and she disobeys the Lord. She seeks to understand what is right and what is wrong apart from God. So she takes control. And then I love the words in Paradise Lost. It talks about, and all the earth feels the wound. All of the earth feels the wound. And then it says, nature slipped from its seat. So it's kind of this like 
a catastrophic moment where the whole earth kind of reverberates with this idea that something has been broken. Um, and from that point on, humanity is now marked with sin and its desire to go, to go it alone without God, right? But even in the Eden narrative, God gives hope that one would come who makes a way for all that was wrong to be made right. So just a few chapters later, we already see um, in Genesis a man named Abraham, who God speaks to, um, and he tells Abraham that promise that I made back then to Adam and Eve, I am going to fulfill that through you and your family, okay? Um, And then just two generations later, we're going kind of fast, you sticking with me? Two generations later, who do we get? Jacob and Esau, okay? Um, So back to this story. So Jacob and Esau, and as the story goes, Esau was the firstborn, um, and so traditionally he should have been the heir and the chosen one, um, through whom all of the family blessings and all of the family promises would be bestowed. Um, But on one particular day, Esau is super hungry. He's just really ravenous. Um, And he goes to his brother, and he asks his brother for a bowl of stew. And his brother Jacob, in response, offers the stew, but in exchange for Esau's birthright, which is absolutely ridiculous. We should all understand that that is ridiculous. Like, no one in their right mind would weigh um, or would equally value a bowl of stew with God's promises and all of the family blessings, right? No one in their right mind should do that. And yet— Esau goes for it. And it says in scripture that Esau despised his birthright. He despised his birthright. So what we see in Esau is that he is a man that does not trust or value the promises of God, but instead he takes things into his own hands, right? He trusts in himself over God. And now, this is a pretty short episode in the full context of Scripture, in the full story of Scripture, Um, but what I think it reveals to us and what I think is so important is that um, these descendants, the Edomites, literally called Edomites because the word Edom refers to the redness of that stew, the Edomites are a nation that have done exactly as Esau. They have trusted in their own might, they have trusted in their own power, and they have despised God. Does that not just evoke such pain that is coming? You just know something is coming. Um, They're a nation who have taken things into their own hands. They have ignored the God of Abraham, the God of their brother, and they have sought to build up their own might, their own power, and their own name. So this is the nation of Obadiah, or the nation that Obadiah writes about. So let's pick back up in verse 1. We haven't gone very far, huh? Okay, so we have a report. Um, we've heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the cleft of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like an eagle, though your nest is among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Okay, 
So things do not look good for Edom. Am I right? Obadiah says that a message has gone out and that the nation um, has gone out to the nations to humble Edom. So the whole like narrative is this idea that like the whole of the nations know that something is happening to Edom. And in verse 3, we see that Edom is being called out for what? Pride. Thank you, Rob. It goes on to describe them being high up in their lofty dwelling, right? This image of being up up high. Um, And there is, I think this is really interesting, actually. There's some evidence that Edom would have been, this. here it describes them as the cleft of the rock. So in the Hebrew, referring to the rock. Um, Anyone know what the Greek word for rock is? Petra. So the, the area of modern-day Petra is actually potentially where some people say um, there's just some evidence to show that this could be like the, the nation of Edom. So if you think about Petra and that image of like those winding ha- or pathways through the rocks, um, they believe in their might because who can get to them, right? They've been brought up high. So, e- but either way, whether this, is, this evidence is right or wrong, we know that there is an indication here that the nation of Edom has set, have set themselves up high, not just physically, but also in their minds. Who can bring us down to the ground? Do you hear the arrogance, the pride? It says they were wrecked with pride, that they had deceived themselves, um, and they had believed in their own might rather than the Lord's their own wisdom and their own ability to go it alone with God. Does that sound familiar at all? So Obadiah prophesies here in verse 4 that God will bring them down. From there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So for me, in reading this story, the first image that comes to mind was actually the Tower of Babel. Anybody else? Anyone see the correlations there? Um, In this story, humanity once again seeks to take control. They seek to build themselves up, quite literally. They, They build themselves a tower. Um... They want transcendence, and truly, they want to be gods on this earth. Um, But in the story, in that story as well, God does not allow their human pride to continue. Um, In the Tower of Babel, they built for themselves, they built for their own glory. And Edom, too, has been building for their glory. But the violence of God's grace is that he does not allow our glory to last Okay, does that make sense? That's kind of an intense statement. The violence of God's grace. God, in his graciousness, he brings us down. Though it's often violent and hard, he reveals to us the foolishness of trusting in our own pride, of trusting in our own glory. So God, through Obadiah, promises to bring Edom down. In fact, when we were talking just back behind stage, we were talking about potentially calling this sermon I will bring you down. (laughs) So watch out. We might bring you down. Um, But I love just this stark downward imagery, right? This, This motion of they've been brought up high, they've been lofty, and then the Lord will bring them down. You can see like the the narrative taking us there. Um, Okay, so let's pick it back up in verse five. If thieves came to you, if plunders came by night, how have you, how you have been destroyed? Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings or like the extras? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasure sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. 
Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you and have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Oh gosh. Okay, here we go. Um, So when Josh first told me that I was going to be teaching on this text, I admit that I was a little scared about these verses. (laughs) How could you not be? Um, Reading verse 5, if thieves come to you, if plunders come by night, how have you have been destroyed? Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers come to you, would they not leave gleanings? And then down to eight and nine, will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men and your mighty men so that, I'm just skipping around a little bit, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter? It's so violent. Um, But here, here's what I come to see. Okay. When we talk about the perfect justice of God, typically in our culture and in our day, what we talk about is um, the perfect justice of God blended and mixed in this paradoxical relationship with his grace and glory. And that is true. That is true. God's justice is perfect in that way. But what is also true is that God's justice is complete. When we look here, the gleanings is this idea of um, when, a per- when a human comes through, they take what they want and they leave a little bit behind. When the robbers come through, they take what they want and they leave a little bit behind. But here it says that the Lord will judge them completely. Whew. That's heavy. God's justice is blended perfectly with his grace and mercy, but it is also perfect because it is complete. Every wrong will be made right. All pride will be brought low. Edom will be judged completely. So let's keep going. Let's go to the next section. This section is called Edom's Violence Against Jacob. Because of the violence done to your brother, shame shall cover you, and, shall, and you shall be cut off forever. There's that completeness again, forever. On that day that you stood aloof, on the day that the stranger just carried off his wealth, and foreigners attended his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gates of my people in the, name, in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Notice the repetition here. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in their distress. Okay, so here, this is the second movement of the book of Obadiah. And here we begin to see some of the ways that Edom's pride has allowed them to just totally abandon their brother nation of Israel. And not only abandon them, but even benefit from their calamity, the word that we read over and over again. So they are a nation and a kingdom that has um, been built upon a history of oppression, a history of victimization, and ultimately of pride. And I think really quickly... When I read this, I'm thinking, um, I look at Edom and I think, oh gosh, that is ugly. I am glad that the Lord's judgment is going to deal with that. 
um, and I distance myself from Edom. I think they deserve it, and so I'm glad God's justice will take care of them. But how many of us benefit from things that oppress or victimize our brothers? How many of us are building our own little kingdoms um, on this earth? You know, in some ways, um, as we were thinking about this, the American dream is really just a modern kingdom, right, that we're trying to build, a modern tower of Babel. We build up our wealth, and we seek out success, and we wear certain things, and we eat certain things, and we ultimately cultivate this image, uh, maybe even online. We create these, we seek to like have this little house where we can have our descendants, right? These descendants that will, that will carry our name um, and carry our transcendence, maybe. Um, and at the end of it, is it for our glory or is it for God's? Just this last week, um, this might be a repetition for some of us ladies, but I was telling this story, this piece of my own story um, at this women's event that we did. So when I was graduating from Moody, from Bible College, I had this trajectory that I was really proud of. It was all going up, right? And I felt like God had really gifted me um, with opportunities and gifts, things that um, I could be used by him. Yeah, I'm sorry, not right now. I'm going to share my story first, and then we can talk later, okay? Um, but I had this ministry job all lined up when I graduated. I had all of these giftings and, um, and opportunities that I felt like the Lord was just launching me, right? He was going to use me to do something awesome for him, right? For his glory. But honestly, for a little bit of my own, too. Um, I also, I had this job all lined up. I had this relationship where we'd been dating for two years, and so we were going to get married, and it just felt like this beautiful story where the Lord was just going to use me, right? Um, but in that time, and in a few months that followed, what happened was this downward motion of the Lord humbling me, right? <clears throat> I got the job, but I didn't get the salary, and so I wasn't going to be able to afford to live in San Diego, which is a really expensive place to live, although Portland might rival it at this point. Um, I had been dating this person, but after this time I found myself, um, this relationship was kind of crumbling, and so suddenly I find myself back in my high school bedroom, of all places, living with mom and dad, and during that time I was really struggling to find a job. Um, so I had this trajectory where it felt like the Lord was going to really use me, really launch me into ministry for him and for his glory, but a little bit of my own. And then I find myself suddenly stripped of all of these things that made me proud. And it's in this place that the Lord truly began to um, root out that pride, especially in regards to the area of ministry. But to be super honest, um, so much of the reason that I wanted to be in ministry was because the culture I had come from, the family that I had, what was cool was to be godly. And so through that process, I just truly began to be convicted of my own pride and my own desire for um, my glory to be mixed in with God's. So sometimes when we look at Edom, we think, oh, they're really different. But in some ways, I think it's too quickly that we've dismissed them. And I think that we might find that we are more similar to them um, if we really take a look at ourselves. So let's keep moving. Let's pick up in verse 15. 
The day of the Lord is near. Okay, here we go. So 15, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and it shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. Again, we see this idea that God's justice is complete, for the Lord has spoken. So this is the third movement of the book of Obadiah. And here we see this huge transition. Who else sees it? Anybody see this hinge that has happened? Okay, first we were talking about one nation, right? Now, what are we talking about? All the nations. Thank you. In verse 15, we read all the nations. Obadiah is prophesying about a future, a day where not only Edom will be judged, but we as well, included in that all the nations, that is you and me. So I love, love, love the imagery. Some of my ladies from the Exodus studies will know this. I love the imagery of verse 16. I'm going to read that one more time. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and it shall be as though they, have never, they had never been. So this drinking imagery points to an image that is used throughout Scripture. From Genesis to Revelations, there is this image of the wine of God's wrath. It comes up in, in Psalms, it comes up in Isaiah, it comes up in Jeremiah, in, and in Revelations, and all the books in between. Um, we, we read that the wine of God's wrath will be poured out over all the wickedness of the world. I love Psalm 75, 8 reads, For in the land of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Oh, the imagery there of a foaming cup of wine, right? That is intense. But Obadiah is referring to God's wrath here. This image that's used throughout scripture, it's so cool. He's referring to the God's wrath when he says that the nations will drink. And it will be as though they, have never, they had never been. It will wipe them out. But just like we saw in Eden, the story of creation, that is not the end of the Lord's promise to us, right? We know that something else is coming. And so in the very next verse, in verse 17, it says, But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. Ugh, that's so powerful. So let's push through, and let's look at the final movement of this book. Okay, this is so exciting. It's coming. Okay, the kingdom of the Lord. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as the Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of Negeb. Saviors shall go up to the Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. 
and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Let's read that last verse again. It's just so good. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Saviors. Whose glory in the end will last? Whose is it? The Lord's. Whose kingdom in the end will last? The Lord's. It's God's kingdom. In Genesis, Eve took of the fruit. Why? Because she sought to take control apart from God. At Babel, they sought to take control to build their own glory. And the Edomites trusted in their own might and their own power, and they despised God's. But at the end, the only glory that will remain is the Savior's. It's Jesus. And what I love about this book, this Obadiah book, is that Obadiah didn't even know the name of the Savior yet. He just writes Savior's. But we do. In the Gospels, we hear a voice from the wilderness cry out, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And after the fall, humanity was marked by pride and this desire to take control from the Lord. But the Savior, this King, he would be so different, so utterly, through and through, completely different. Jesus came and humbled himself. He did not consider glory a thing to be grasped. He didn't seek his own glory like we seek our own. He didn't consider it to be gra- something to be grasped even though he alone deserves it, right? Instead, he emptied himself and he shed his glory. I love that image. And on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took up the bread and he broke his body and he said, this is my body, I break it for you. And in the same way, he takes of the cup, this cup of wine, and he says, this is my blood, which I have poured out for you. And only hours later, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there Jesus is kneeling and weeping and sweating blood. He's incredibly stressed. And he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Okay, so do you see this cup that Jesus is referring to? is the same cup that is referred to in Obadiah. This is the same reference. Jesus is the man who turned water to wine, but he is not only that. He's also the Savior who took the wine of God's wrath and turned into the blood of his redemption. He took it for you. Even though it caused him to sweat with blood, he took it for you. So when you take... And when I take of the communion cup, it tastes sweet, right? Because Jesus, on the cross, tasted the bitterness of the wrath of God. And he did it on your behalf. So what does Obadiah have for us today? This is the best. Two things. Two lessons, but I don't want to call them lessons because lessons is just a word that has no feeling to me. So I'm going to call them like exhortations, two exhortations. Um, I want you to feel the compelling nature of these two points. In Obadiah, we see that God's judgment is perfect in that it will be complete. We, too, will be judged along with Edom, 
So we do not need, so we do, should not be deceived by our own pride. Seeking human glory is foolishness. We have to see that. For it will always be done with. It will always be undone. Um, and it will always be brought low. And then secondly, the Obadiah did not know his name. He knew that a savior was still coming. And so even though Edom would drink of the cup of God's wrath, Jesus offers us the blood of his redemption. And if we believe in Jesus, and we believe in his well-deserved glory, and not our own, we shed our own, and we confess that he is Lord and King, the King who brings this kingdom, then we will be saved. So there is so much hope for us in the book of Obadiah. Um, And like I said at the beginning, my hope is that your heart would just literally burn with that hope. That it would burn with a hunger to be close to this God, this Savior who does this for you. This faith is not just an intellectual faith, right? Those of us who have experienced it know that it is not. It's one in which our hearts can burn for the Savior. So, to close, I just want to end with this Tozer prayer that I have been praying and praying and praying. It just feels like it keeps coming up and keeps coming up. So let's just end with this prayer. Jesus, I want to know you, but my cowardly heart fears to give up its toys. I cannot part with them without inward bleeding. And do not try to hide from you the terror of the parting. Lord, I come trembling, but I do come. I love that. I do. I come trembling, but I do come. Please root from my heart all those things which I have cherished so long and which have become a very part of my living self so that you may enter and dwell on the throne of my heart without a revi- rival. And then my heart shall have no need of the sun to shine for you yourself will be the light of my life and there shall be no night there. <laughs>